Well, last week in 1 Peter, we saw that the apostle opened with a word to elect exiles scattered and dispersed in the earth who have come by the grace of the electing God to obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in our text this morning, which is the New Testament lesson from 1 Peter, we have here in this text one of the grandest paragraphs in all of Scripture. It's dense, it's luminous, it's accessible, it's encouraging. This is high theology that is highly practical. And we'll make three points here. They should be on your outline. Inheritance, trials, and joy. Inheritance, trials, and joy. So first then, inheritance. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter begins, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The whole passage is a benediction. It's an act of praise. It's theology in the key of doxology. He is pronouncing a blessing, a benediction on the name of God for his mighty saving action on our behalf. And the attribute of God, which is placed front and center here, prominently at the beginning, is mercy. Kind of like a banner over the whole text is the mercy of God. God is rich in mercy And here Peter calls his mercy great, in his great mercy. If you want to be like God in the world, unleash a river, a torrent of mercy on the people in your life. Especially the undeserving ones, because that's what mercy is. The objects of mercy are always undeserving. In his great mercy, he has given us birth, Peter says, new birth, into a living hope. We are reborn by this mercy or born into a living hope. Not a dead hope, but a resurrection hope. Not a hope which will disappoint, but the hope which is our life. We are born into this hope. Now, this might be surprising, what the text does here. We are born into this hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. His resurrection is the decisive action in your rebirth. It's a great mystery. It's at the center of the Christian faith. Somehow, we were in and with Christ when he died. And when he was raised. We died with him. And we were raised with him. And we are seated with him in the heavenly places. This is why the church is a heavenly people. We have a heavenly citizenship. Our citizenship Our politics, the word for citizenship there is the word we get politics from, our polis, when Paul writes this to the Philippian church in in Philippians chapter 3. They are a proud colony of Rome. And Paul is saying to them, you're really a colony or an outpost of heaven, for your true citizenship is not in Rome, but it's in heaven. 
You have died with Christ, been raised with Christ, and now are seated with Christ, and there your life is. And his resurrection then conducts us into a new birth, a new order, a living, indestructible hope. Of what specifically does this hope consist? You can see this in the text, and I hope you're following the text here. It consists of being born into an inheritance. So Peter's mind works like this. Birth confers inheritance rights. Right? Children become heirs. We are born anew, and thus we shall inherit. So getting this right is crucial. This is not an earthly inheritance. We looked at this last week. Israel's inheritance in Canaan points toward or is a type of our inheritance in heaven. This is made utterly clear here. This is an inheritance, Peter says, kept or reserved for you in heaven. There it is explicitly in the text. Put simply, because your inheritance is in heaven, we shall Then, when the veil between heaven and earth is torn, when Jesus descends, we shall inherit the earth. Because your inheritance is kept and reserved in heaven, you shall inherit the earth. Now, by the Spirit, by the presence of the Spirit, we have a pledge, the Bible tells us, a seal, a down payment of this future inheritance. We have the promise of inheritance. But the inheritance itself, Peter says, is reserved for you or kept for you in heaven. This is the best possible news for exiles in the earth. For the instant that we are born again, we are oriented toward this heavenly patrimony, this inheritance. Peter tells us quite a bit here about the inheritance. Unlike the land of Israel, unlike any created thing, this inheritance, Peter says, can never perish, it can never spoil, and it can never fade. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. The heavens and the earth, they will perish. Hebrews chapter 1, citing Psalm 102. Thou, O Lord, are eternal, but they shall perish. They shall be rolled up like a scroll. The heavens and earth, depending on which biblical metaphor you want to use, shall be rolled up like a scroll, or they shall be consumed by fire. Our bodies, which are sown into the earth at death, are called perishable, corruptible. Weak. This inheritance not only won't perish, it cannot perish. It is of a different quality from every created thing. It is like we shall be in resurrected glory. It is imperishable. And it cannot spoil, it's undefiled. Right? Again, unlike the land which could be defiled with pagan idolatry, It could be defiled by Israel's idolatry. This inheritance is beyond the possibility of defilement. 
Not a single thought. Not a single thought in the recesses of any heart. Not a single word, not a single deed can possibly defile this inheritance. And it cannot fade, Peter says. It's unfading. Which means it can neither increase or decrease. It doesn't ebb. It doesn't flow. The inheritance is utterly full and replete in its radiance. Unfading. Imperishable. Undefiled. Unfading. Where might such an inheritance be? In heaven. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It is kept where our Jesus is. Where Zion is. In Revelation 14, John sees Mount Zion with the Lamb on his throne and the 144,000 around him. Zion is a heavenly location. It is the church in her heavenly dimension. That's where your inheritance is. Where Zion is, where Jerusalem is, where the sanctuary is, where the Davidic throne is. Where the fiery host of heaven are. Where the righteous dead are. Where the church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven are. That's where we have come. Where the immediate, full, visible glory of the triune God is. There is your inheritance. This is why the writer to the Hebrews tells us that our hope, we mentioned this last week, I think, is like an anchor which pierces through the veil into the Holy of Holies in the heavenly tabernacle where Jesus, our forerunner, goes ahead of us, goes before us. This is the great Christian displacement. This is why we are exiles. This is why Jesus tells us to store up treasure there in heaven and not on earth. He does not think you can store up treasure in both places. And then the Lord says, for where your treasure is, there you shall find your heart. That is a very convicting phrase. Because we know where our hearts are. We know what our hearts are set on. And Jesus is saying to us, look, you cannot have your heart in heaven and on earth. It cannot be in both places. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. This, then, is the living hope into which you have been born again. And this, then, is to be the great passion, the grand preoccupation, the determining thing in Christian vision. As Paul puts this in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, in the gospel, we have heard the gospel, which is the word of truth, we have heard of a hope laid up for you in heaven. It's a remarkable statement. The preaching of the gospel is about this heavenly hope. That's what you heard about. Paul tells the Colossian Christians when the gospel was preached to you. You heard about a hope reserved or stored or laid up for you in heaven. Paul uses the same language when he says, The Lord has laid up for me a crown on that day. Not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. The gospel is about this hope, this vision. And so we need, and Peter's a great help to us here. 
We need to restore heaven and the highest heavens and the glory throne of God himself and the visible splendor and radiance of God in his court, surrounded by his hosts and the righteous dead. We need to restore this to its preeminent place in Christian consciousness because it has been dethroned and because our vision has been bent downward, fixated, it seems to me, on anything but heaven and God himself. Often wrapped in all sorts of noble Christian language, nevertheless, we find ourselves utterly bereft, lacking in this ascent, right? this orientation, this penetration behind the veil into heaven itself, which the Apostle Peter displays here. We do not move as the apostle does. It is just not natural for us. It's not instinctive for us to move from the moment of our being born again to a living hope which is wholly reserved in heaven for us. From the instant of one's conversion, which occurs through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are oriented to the coming resurrection of the dead to the coming of Jesus, to the full possession of our inheritance, of which we have a down payment now. And people with a down payment groan for the house. People with a down payment groan for the house. So that's our inheritance. The second point, then, is trials. Trials. It is this vision of the coming glory which alone is sufficient to sustain the church in her deepest distress. Now I know, to some ears, it sounds like I'm going on and on and on about the eschaton all the time and heaven all the time. But I want you to hear the point, the transition Peter makes He thinks that it is the vision of the coming glory alone which is sufficient to sustain the church in her deepest distress. High theology, then, is highly practical. There's nothing retreatist about it. Heavenly theology is highly earthy. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who... Verse 5 says, who are shielded through faith by God's power. Right? It would do us little good to know we have an inheritance that's being kept for us if we were not being kept for it. This inheritance is kept in heaven and you are by faith shielded by God's power until you get there. That's spectacular news. These suffering, harassed Christians are shielded, not from, but in, in their suffering, by the power of God. It's remarkable. The the idea for shielded here is very close to the idea of being under arrest. It's as if you're in the protective custody of God. 
Some of us feel like perhaps we are under arrest these days. But I will tell you this. The church, the book of Revelation tells us repeatedly, is those who dwell in heaven. The mystery of the church's life, her citizenship, her treasure, her dwelling place cannot be touched by the civil authorities. They could close every church in the land, ban all public worship into the indefinite future, padlock every church, and not touch the mystery of the church's life or the place where the church dwells. The city, the Zion, the Jerusalem, the throne, the sanctuary in which the saints abide. Now, they can trample the church in her outward estate, and we should not belittle that. It's a serious matter. But we are kept in the protective custody of God, shielded by faith. How long is the church shielded by God's power? The text says, until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This is just another way of saying, until the inheritance is possessed. Until the inheritance is possessed. Peter will later say, Christ was revealed. You'll see that Peter loves this word revealed. And revealed for Peter is an eschatological word. Christ was revealed in these last times for salvation. So in his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and in the gift of the Spirit, he was revealed. And now, there's a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Salvation is almost always spoken of in the future tense in 1 Peter. It's basically a synonym for heavenly inheritance. Notice that the text says that this salvation is ready to be revealed. It's not dependent on anything. It's not waiting for anything. It's not deferred because it's not ready yet or not prepared. Like your inheritance, your future salvation is full, perfect, and ready to be revealed. In chapter 4, Peter will say that Christ is ready to judge the living and the dead. Ready. For the end of all things is at hand. So the word revealed points to the second coming of Jesus. He has been revealed. In these last times, he shall be revealed in the last time, bringing salvation in its fullness. When he is revealed, John tells us, we will be like him. Because we will see him as he is. There's something transformative about sight. When Jesus is revealed in this sense, it means unveiled seen visibly by the human eye in all of his transfigured glory. You are kept for that unveiling, for that revealing by the power of God. And in all this, Peter says in verse 8, in all of this, you greatly rejoice. The heavenly hope The heavenly vision, the power of God, which is keeping you for it, are a cause of deep, abiding, great joy for the church. If our joy is tethered to historical events which ebb and flow, right, a series of earthly outcomes and reversals, then our joy is going to be erratic. 
right? Peter is here tethering your joy to that which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. In this you greatly rejoice. The word is exalt. So again, to repeat, the eschatological vision of this coming glory is the source of all the church's joy. Not some of her joy, all of it. We draw down joy from the future into the present. That's how the Christian life works. We draw down joy from the coming glory into the present. But notice, notice this. Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice, but now. But now. This now. This little while. This time of this age. Here, the church, he says, suffers grief in all kinds of trials. In this, she's simply imitating her Lord. No servant is above his master. He suffered, we're going to suffer. But notice notice then the paradox in the text, because it is bracing. We greatly rejoice in the coming inheritance, in the salvation ready to be revealed. And strangely, we suffer all kinds of trials and grief. This is, this is life in Christ. This is the history of the church condensed into one or two lines. And this whole joining together, this whole conjunction of suffering and hope is at the heart of the apostles' concern in this letter. John Calvin puts it this way. Peter writes, he says, now this is Calvin, so that we may not think it hard to give up the world in order to enjoy the priceless treasure of the future life. And also, so that we may not be broken by our present troubles, but patiently endure them, being satisfied with eternal happiness. Calvin understands where the weight, where the center of gravity is for the apostle. In the future life, in eternal happiness, and that those things are what keep us from being broken in the midst of the brokenness of the world. No eternal heavenly vision, no earthly resilience. This is far from a flighty thing or some puffy heavenly thing. No eternal heavenly vision, no earthly resilience. It's a very important text for ministers or for anyone in counseling or for anyone trying to help a friend. Often we are tempted to offer some kind of false consolation. Right? The trials will go away. They will soon show fruit. Look, we can already see all the good that's happening. They'll all make sense in this life. They'll lead to some great earthly advantage or gain. We want to do the calculus somehow between human grief and human misery and some sort of short-term public fruit. But Peter speaks otherwise to the church. These trials, he says, have come for one reason, to purify your soul. He says they've come so that the proven or the tested genuineness of your faith Faith, which is of greater worth than all gold, he says. 
than all stock portfolios, than all retirement accounts, than all earthly security. Greater than gold, which, though it can be refined by fire, he says, nevertheless perishes. Even gold is a perishable item. But he says your faith, because you're kept by God's power, shall survive the fire of these trials. Not only shall it survive, Peter says this, and it will thus result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed, unveiled in his glory. Paul uses the same language in Romans 2 about praise and honor and immortality that will be unveiled on the day of God's righteous revelation, the day of wrath, the day of judgment. So again, Jesus Christ being revealed here is speaking about his being revealed on the last day. And what happens then to those who have been kept by faith, by the power of God in the midst of the crucible of human existence? Praise and glory and honor are rendered not only to Christ at his appearing, but surely this includes praise and glory and honor, open public commendation being bestowed upon the saints. Your glory, your public honor, your commendation from God will appear when Jesus Christ reveals. When he is revealed, then you shall be revealed with him in glory. So this is added to the text, Calvin says, so that... Again, this is Calvin, so that the faithful will learn to hold on. It reminds me of the old uh, civil rights song. Hold on, hold on, keep your eyes on the prize, hold on. So Calvin says, this is written so that the faithful will learn to hold on courageously to the last day. For our life is now hidden in Christ and will remain hidden as if it were buried until Christ shall appear from heaven. That's Calvin quoting Colossians 3 while he comments on this passage. Now, there's nothing about this coming glory that means our trials are not heartbreaking. They often are. Or that we don't sorrow long before comfort comes. Or that our hope is not often deferred seemingly endlessly. Or that we're not battered and bruised and barely hanging on at many times. Of course we are. Or that we're not perplexed. Or that we don't find life and our sufferings incomprehensible. Peter certainly doesn't mean that when he speaks this way to the saints. There's nothing here that denies the fact that sometimes the way people talk about heaven or the age to come can sound trite or far away or irrelevant in the face of great loss. All of this must be tended to with great patience and love. Yet, yet Peter is convinced that joy is to be had in the midst of grievous trial not in their absence, in the middle of them. Trials, he insists, produce glory to be revealed at Christ's appearing. This must be enough for us, beloved. If this coming glory is not enough, we need to ask ourselves if our vision of the coming glory needs to be thickened and enlarged and enriched and developed. Or perhaps we need to ask ourselves if our vision has not, in fact, been bent downward 
And Peter is trying to bend it back and direct it up. That's trials. The third thing the apostle talks about is joy. Joy. If we needed any more confirmation that he's focused on the age to come, on the second coming, just after speaking of Jesus being revealed, what does he say? He says, though you have not seen him. You see that? Jesus being revealed means seeing him face to face, and the saints on earth have not yet seen him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. It's a beautiful thing for Peter to say to the church. You know what it takes to be heavenly minded, to have this living hope of an inheritance kept in heaven for you, to be looking for the unveiling of Jesus? What's the fuel of that? Love for him. Love for him. Who loves their spouse and doesn't want to see them? face-to-face. What kind of bride does not want to see her bridegroom? What lover does not want to see the beloved? Who would not want to move from faith to sight, from inauguration to consummation? Love for Jesus without yearning for his appearance is fraudulent. Peter would have no idea what such a thing might be. It would be akin to having a massive inheritance and never talking about it. You do not see him now, but you love him. You believe in him, Peter says. Faith is the way we see Christ in this age. You believe in him. And then he says, and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. These suffering, powerless exiles are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Already now, right now, by faith, we lay hold of the coming glory and we're filled with it. And this, again, is the source of the church's joy. Again, to repeat, this vision, this coming heavenly vision of our inheritance This is the fountain and the source of all the church's joy. We draw down joy from the future into the present. And in believing, we are, Peter concludes, receiving. We are now, through faith, beginning to receive the end result of our faith. Namely, he says, the future salvation of your souls. By faith. We have the down payment, the foretaste, the pledge, the beginning. We already enter into the joy of the end, the joy of the coming inheritance. This is Peter's deep theological medicine, his prescription for a suffering people. And I assure you, we have only scratched the surface of this paragraph. But this is his remedy. This is his prescription as a pastor for them. And he does not think this is pie in the sky. He thinks this this vision transcends heaven and earth and penetrates behind the veil and lays hold of the only solid thing there is in the cosmos. He thinks this is Jesus veiled behind the sky. So in closing, I just want to point out very briefly two things. Two things. 
First, all three of what are known as the theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, all three of them are activated in this text here. Faith is the instrument or the means by which God keeps us for this coming salvation. Right? By which we begin to receive the end. Right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Love, love for Jesus fills us with joy. And it is itself a taste of this coming glory. Love for the one we do not see. Faith is the conviction about things unseen. Love for Jesus is love for one whom we do not see. And of course, hope, the living hope into which we've been born, orients us toward the resurrection, toward our inheritance kept for us in heaven. Faith, hope, and love. They conspire together to anchor us in heaven. Faith, hope, and love, beloved, cannot be properly calibrated in your life without this heavenly vision. Secondly, in closing, I just want to point out what was mentioned at the beginning, lest we forget it. All of these virtues, all that we have spoken of in the text here is set in the frame of praise. The whole text is a benediction. Peter is, in a way, if you will, singing this text. Right? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who by his abundant mercy, it's a song, this being caused to be born again, through the resurrection, into a living hope, to a heavenly inheritance, kept for you, who in the midst of trials are being purified so that joy and honor and glory can be revealed on the last day. The whole thing is a speaking of praise to God for the salvation which is ready to be revealed in the last time. This is an exercise by a pastor with his troubled people in rejoicing greatly, in celebrating abundant mercy. And thus, we could preface every sentence every thought of this sermon with the way Peter has prefaced this text. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.